0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 199 of the Speaking Club podcast. I'd like to open the show today with a quote from a chap called Cullen Hightower. He was a veteran and a quotation and quip writer. Saying what we think gives a wider range of conversation than saying what we know. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking And because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Well hello, I hope you're well and you're having a fabulous week. I want to start by giving a shout out today to Jeff Good, who took the time to tell me how much he got out of last week's show, episode 198, and how it had helped him with the presentations he's doing this week. Thank you very much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, you definitely should. And if you get a lot out of it too, then do leave a rating or review for the podcast over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. Or, like Jeff, you could shoot me an email. Cool. Thanks for joining me again here on The Speaking Club. And I know you're going to get a lot out of this show too. And that's because we're talking about big conversations, authentic dialogue and purpose. Now, as you probably know, not all conversations are of equal importance. There are some that become pivotal to our life's purpose and success. But how do we know which ones they are? And how should we prepare for them? That's where this show and my guest Sarah Rosentula come in. Sarah is a chartered psychologist, a dialogue coach, and leadership consultant with over 15 years' experience consulting to many of the biggest profit and not-for-profit organisations around the world, including likes of BP, Discovery Inc., Standard Chartered Bank, The World Bank, Choice Support and Book Trust. She's got deep expertise in coaching teams, making dialogue authentic and connecting people with a compelling purpose. And using that expertise, she inspires leaders, empowers teams and strengthens organisations to generate competitive advantage and become a force for good. Without further ado... Let's head over to the interview. Welcome to The Speaking Club, Sarah Rosentula. Hello,
1: Sarah. Delighted to be here with you. Delighted
0: to have you here. got lots to ask you about today, so I'm not going to hang around. The first question that I wanted to ask you was what happened in your life that made you want to become a business psychologist?
1: It's a great question and a great starting point. And I really have to acknowledge my dad. Because my dad was a civil engineer uh, and always interested in people. So there were books lying around the house, Dale Carnegie's classic How to Win Friends and Influence People, books on body language, how to read a person like a book. And I read those during my teenage years but I also thought I wanted to be an architect which was my dad's dream, unlived dream and I actually fell into that classic trap of wanting to fulfill my parents unlived life, in this case my dad. So I thought I wanted to be an architect, chose my A-level subjects to do architecture And then I ended up having a conversation with my mum who confronted me saying, I don't think you want to study architecture, do you? Um, Even though I had an offer from the University of Nottingham to do architecture. And I went away and I thought, actually, she's right. Because I felt this huge burden lift off my shoulders. And I thought, well, if I don't do architecture what would I study? And then I looked at the books I was reading. And without knowing anything about academic psychology, without understanding how much statistics there is, for example, in psychology, I um, I was fortunate the University of Nottingham switched my offer. I went on to do a psychology degree. And you could say to some extent, the rest is history.
0: Wow. Um, so I'm curious there. So In my head, psychology is not about statistics. I don't know why. I'm a a layman, I guess. But it's about asking deep questions and getting answers and understanding behavior and all that good stuff. But what so what's where do the statistics come in?
1: Oh, well, I think at the heart of psychology, you're absolutely right. It is about asking deep questions. And I think it's about a deep understanding of human motivation and human behavior. And then it depends on how psychology gets taught and what the philosophy of the psychology is. And at Nottingham, we were taught in a very, very scientific way. So we were taught always to ask the question, what's the evidence for this? What's the empirical basis um, for this? And so in the study of psychology as a scientific discipline, loads of statistics. And so the fact I'd done A-level maths, thinking I'd wanted to be an architect, turned out to be very useful because I wasn't phased by all the statistics. So it depends which psychology department you study in.
0: Wow, that's really interesting because we i don't know if this is right but this just popped into my head i and probably many other human beings love to think that we're unique and special and we are um but in terms of this empirical evidence and and my understanding of stories and universal stories and and all of those things is that we are more you know that there are in terms of those that evidence and that data is it around typical human behavior or is it something different
1: Well, it points to all sorts of things. I mean, I absolutely agree that each one of us is unique and we are all special in our different ways. And that, for me, is really true. And I think we flourish and we thrive in life when we're true to ourselves and when we're authentic. And it's also true, that there are patterns that studies and experiments and science can usefully point to. So just one example, quick example would be if you've got a more introverted preference rather than an extroverted preference, the chances are you'll show up differently in a meeting and in a conversation because you probably like to gather your thoughts before you speak. And so understanding those patterns, I think could also be really helpful, as well as honouring our individuality.
0: That's brilliant. And, and there's a nice segue. So clearly you're passionate about this. Um, but what made you switch then from, from psych business psychology to specialise in what you do today, which is to become a dialogue coach?
1: Yes, well, There's a whole body of theory and practice and tools around dialogue. So how do we, whether it's in our home setting, in our personal life or in a business setting, talk together more productively when there are difficult things to discuss without rupturing relationships? And again, I actually think my interest looking back, it goes back to my family of origin where as a child growing up, certainly for the first few years, there was very little overt conflict in the family. And yet I think as children are very instinctive, I could feel things bubbling away under the surface. And then once in a while, a grown up would explode with anger. And as a child, that was quite frightening. And so again, I can see it more clearly with hindsight, but I think because I struggled in that environment, and then when I was a young adult, I was not well equipped for dealing with conflict or feeling grounded enough to speak my truth. I think that's where, when I came across this body of research and practice around dialogue, it was so exciting. And I could see the difference that it could make in the workplace, where maybe 20 people are around the table grappling with complex issues, that there's actually a science and an art of helping that dialogue process. It's not ever um, going to be simple, but it can be easier for people. And that still intrigues me to this day. Cool. And was there one... Because I always say, and
0: I think this is true, uh, but you're the expert, is that people buy into a new way of doing things or an idea or hobby, whatever it is, emotionally first before they're sold on it logically. And normally there's a moment in our lives where there's this light bulb moment, something happens. And was there a specific event for you that you saw this in action, that, that, that you brought in emotionally to, to this dialogue concept?
1: Absolutely. I can remember the moment really clearly, that emotional connection being formed and a bodily sensation. And it when, it's when I was in my late 20s, I think, around 30, and I went on this dialogue training programme, I was working as a business psychologist at the cabinet office at the time, so working in the civil service. And I went on this training programme, I think it was three days long, and I was introduced to these different processes and tools. And I woke up, I think on day three at about 5am, and I sat bolt right up in bed. And I just thought, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to learn. Because if we have this skill set at the cabinet office, these different projects I was working on that had multiple stakeholders and sometimes competing agendas, we'd be able to navigate our way through it more clearly. And so that was the light bulb moment. And I also realised that I didn't have the skill set. I was just starting to learn it. I didn't have the positional power at the cabinet office to convene the conversation and so a year or so later I left the civil service to go and get some deeper training and in effect take my first steps on the path to becoming a dialogue coach.
0: Oh, that's really interesting and I and I'm just wanted to, to ask a supplementary question so is so my my family background is everyone shouts and like arguments and shouting and getting things off your chest are pretty much the norm and there's a big blow up for like if and then people get back together and I just wonder if your background had been more or sort of on the sort of fully expressed side would you have been as interested in taking this path uh, as, as you were?
1: Hard to know um, of course I think it's a good hypothesis that I might not have been so intrigued because it was that sense of the disconnect between what was being outwardly expressed and what was really bubbling away under the surface that I think was so compelling for me as a child I just do and I see it in the lives of many of the people I coach many of the leaders that I work with that all of us in our own unique ways are really shaped by our family of origin and that early family environment, for better, for worse, and it probably contains both gifts and pieces of grit, it really, really impacts us. And it's only many years later that I've looked back and joined the dots between, in effect, career choices I've made and the family system that I was born into
0: is that is that term that you're using family of origin is that is that you're choosing that term carefully or what what's what's that about
1: well it's just to acknowledge uh it's to make it distinct so family of origin the family we're born into yeah rather than the family that we might create for ourselves later in life through having a partner through having our own children or adopting children Um, So, yeah, sorry, it sounds like a slightly technical term. Brilliant.
0: Okay, so what I'm then curious about is um, what is the difference between this authentic dialogue that you work with today and just a normal conversation?
1: Well, normal conversation is great. Um, You know, if we were fish, it's the kind of sea that we swim in. And I think some of the time... We don't need to pay it more attention than that. Um, And then there are conversations. uh, And again, that could be in our personal life, it could be in our work life, where maybe our stomach starts churning, there's a sense of dread. The research shows that about 70% of managers can relate to avoiding having a difficult conversation, which might, for example, be about a performance issue, or needing to give a colleague a tricky piece of feedback. And so that's where I think authentic dialogue comes into its own. And the essence of it would be that it's a real co-creation. So it's not that one person is dominating the conversation, or in a group setting, two people are dominating But there's much more equal airtime. People are really listening to one another, a bit like I'm experiencing with you now. You might have done your prep or thought it was going to go in one direction, but you're present and in the moment. And it goes in a slightly unpredictable direction, but that has an aliveness to it. And crucially, people feel able to speak about what is true for them. And that might feel risky and you might feel like you're going out on a limb. So there's a sense of vulnerability and that what that's what brings the authenticity.
0: Cool. And I can really relax. I've, I, have you know, my corporate career, I was leading teams and I absolutely hated those conversations because I like to be liked. Yes. And so for me, it was like, oh, you know, if I have that, it's thinking about how they're going to react and then what that means for me. Yeah. And and sort of, you know, it's, it is a visceral feeling that you're just like, I don't want to do this, but you're not doing people favors if yeah. you don't tell the truth. Yeah. Uh, so, OK, so in terms of um, what you teach people, how does um, having those authentic conversations in the experience that you've had in terms of seeing results, how does that transform um, a team's performance and an individual's well-being?
1: Well, on the team level, what I've seen over time is a group of individuals, a collection of individuals starting to operate more like a cohesive unit. And so there's much less fragmentation. People are more likely to proactively reach out to one another. They might ask for help. They might be willing to go the extra mile. And so you get an uplift in the team's performance because the air is much clearer. There aren't things festering in the air, unresolved issues, things that are unspoken. And all that stuff consumes psychic energy and emotional energy. And that, of course, then puts a lid on performance. And then on an individual level, and you asked about well-being... I think that there's a natural impulse that we actually all have to want to speak the truth and show up fully and be who we are. So to the extent that we can live that, and we're not feeling that we're on withhold because we can't say that to that person or we're, we feel like we're walking on eggshells around that person then uh, there's a flow of positive energy inside us that I think is directly related to how um, easily and how fully we feel we can express ourselves.
0: Yeah, and that's really interesting as well. I, I think that's absolutely true. And I, what I've also seen, and I don't know if you've experienced in terms of the people that you've coached, is that um, you know my background was in corporate, was in HR. And quite often I saw people have thoughts in their head that they made mean something and that, that probably wasn't true, but it affected their behavior so much that it made the thought come true. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you don't get this stuff out, you can create the situation that you imagine is happening and it actually isn't. Is that, is that you've experienced that?
1: Oh, I can really relate to that in my own personal experience where I've got all tangled up with a story that I've been telling myself inside my head that has then made me anxious. And then I show up anxious and guess what? It plays out in the way you were describing as in what my thoughts were telling me about it. And so in the coaching work that I do and sometimes on the dialogue programs that I run, There's an element where we look in a very conscious way at our inner dialogue. So we sort of go further upstream and there are tools and there are frameworks that can be used to just gently explore what is going on in your head invisibly and yet could be having such an impact on how the outer dialogue Is going and again that work really excites me because I think when people start to develop their awareness of the inner dialogue it creates really sustainable shifts in mindset and behavior
0: and and the word that keeps coming up for me during this interview in terms of the work that you do is is the term I don't know if it's right or not but is the term home truth and I think potentially it's like it's, it's a two-sided thing. It's you being able to tell home truths to the people that you're speaking to, but also in this inner dialogue work, being able to tell some home truths to yourself so that you understand the way that you behave.
1: I think that's great. And I think it captures that, that, those two aspects you've described there of home truth. For me, it reflects that there's... There's a level of truth telling, which is us telling the truth to ourselves about ourselves, about the situation, about how we feel about the other person. And I think there needs to be a certain degree of clarity. That's where it begins on on that level. And then there's another. So we're telling home truths to ourselves. And then there's another Level of truth telling that again, I think you've pointed to where we, and this is maybe where it feels as though it's more risky, we express that truth that we're seeing, um, that is our truth to the other person or the other people involved in the situation. And of course, it is only our perception. Uh, And I think, again, there's a real art to both aspects of that home truth sharing that can help us stay in relationship with one another we it's we don't always have to burn bridges or break bridges even when there are tough things to talk about
0: i think that's absolutely right and i think that's you know having a system or a process or a set of tools that people can access really takes that pressure away and and, you know it's really the work that you do I can see the value of it absolutely now you've talked or you talk about in in things that I've seen and read these big conversations and you know maybe some of these home truths come up in those conversations I don't know but what could you explain a bit more about what you mean by a life-changing conversation
1: yeah well the example I gave earlier of my own mum confronting me about hey you know I don't think you do want to study architecture do you and what she picked up on was that I was avoidant around the topic of going to university and she said to me I just think you're the kind of person that would really love university and she was right about that so there's something going on here that's making you uh, not want to talk and the only thing I can pin it on is your choice of degree subject and so Um, I think that's, again, where my interest comes from, because a conversation, a life changing conversation is not just a verbal interaction. It's a threshold to cross. And that's also why we need our courage and why we can feel so nervous about it sometimes. And in my experience, if we call up our courage and we cross that threshold, and we lean into having the conversation, which could be life changing for the other person, or for ourselves, because it might lead to a different choice of job or career, or we might be talking about um, a health issue. We might be uh, there's a story in my first book, How to Have Meaningful Conversations about a a situation in a couple with their wills. They had mirror wills, and then one of them went away and changed the will behind the partner's back. Um, So, you know, another big conversation to be had. If we get across the line and lean in, then a whole new chapter of life can start, it can really open the door. But if we stay avoiding the conversation, I think it can create an ongoing sense of stuckness Um, and life doesn't change and our energy level goes down.
0: Brilliant. And another thing that's sort of coming up for me while you talk is in NLP, there's this term that the intention of the communication is the response that you'll get. And I think that's true. So entering conversations with great intentions, but I don't think it's enough because I think people need the, the skills and just to support mechanism, if you like, to have those conversations so that they don't become, they don't escalate, you're managing the other person's you know, response, giving them the space. I mean, I I don't know what you do, but I can imagine, you know, those things will really help. So, and I know that you've got courses and programs and, and so to cover this, but if people are preparing for these types of conversations, could you give them maybe just a couple of tips for, for doing that? And then, you know, we're going to talk about where they can find out more from you but
1: just a couple of tips would be brilliant sure so let's just keep it really practical one thing would be pick your moment to have that conversation there's a time to lean in and there's a time for I don't know what to call it abstinence not going there Um, so for example you might not if you were needing to have a big conversation with your partner Don't have it when you're both tired, you know, or you're both feeling a bit run ragged because you've got the kids to bed and it's been a full on day. Don't have it when you've had, you know, some alcohol and, you know, things could escalate quite quickly. So pick your moment and related to that, it might be pick your place as well. So, you know, is it a conversation to be had when you're outside walking, for example, or even perhaps in the car where you've got some focused time together. Uh, That's debatable whether that's a good choice. So that would be one tip. And another one I would share, again, just really practical in preparing, is find your opening. So what's the very first thing that you'll say? And in a way, that picks up on the point you were making about your intention And so you might think, you know, sincerely, what is my intention here? And what is my intention not? You know, I'm not trying to make trouble. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm not trying to make you feel small or bad in any way. But there's something we really need to talk about. So those would be a couple of tips to get started.
0: That's brilliant. That's great. And now i I don't know how what's going to come from this question, but I feel compelled to ask it because this is the speaking club. and um i'm I'm interested to to get your view on how speakers can take some of these ways of communicating to connect more powerfully with an audience. And I know you speak yourself.
1: Yes, well, your the point, <clears throat> excuse me, that you made earlier about emotional connection comes back to mind. And I think you said it very, very well, that often, we need to make that connection, you know, with our heart or our belly, before, you know, the rationality kicks in. So I think for speakers, for fellow speakers, or aspiring speakers, there is something about being willing to put your own skin in the game, Uh, I mean, Brené Brown talks about being in the arena, doesn't she? And being willing to share from your own experience, your own, you know, perhaps successes. But I think we relate more to the missteps and the struggles along the way as well. I think that's really compelling. I also think it's a fine balance because ultimately, if you're speaking to a group of people... Ultimately, it's not about you. It's about supporting them and strengthening them. So we don't want to be too self-absorbed. And yet we do want to be sharing to some degree from our own experience.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I I talk about speakers being the vehicle for the message. right? So it does take you out of the equation. So this is not about, you know, you've got to prepare. and, And these stories from our lives are powerful in getting that emotional buy-in. But there is that balance to be had between it's, it's, you know, whilst those are powerful and you should use them, it isn't about you, it's about them and getting that message across. So that's really useful points. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's about a little sprinkle if you were cooking, you know, it's a, it's a sprinkle of your own stuff, but it's not the main meal for the yeah. other people. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, now I wanted also to ask you about your most recent book, Powered by Purpose. What prompted you to write that? Because this isn't your first book. What was the background to this one?
1: So this one, and it was a while, it took a while to write it. So I would go back about five or six years. And in my dialogue work, I started noticing that when groups of people or in an individual coaching session, the question of purpose Was coming up, you know, what's the purpose of this team or this organization or people coming to coaching and saying, you know, I I remember one coachee saying to me, she was in the civil service, I just feel like a policy wonk. You know, I joined the civil service because I really wanted to make a difference. Um, But I've kind of got caught up in all the admin. And so across these different contexts, I could see people asking these questions and the dialogue would just very naturally drop to a deeper level um, and we'd be starting to include a deeper exploration. So I was noticing that in my own work and running alongside that um, there was a growing business case reading the business literature and the leadership literature. We were starting to see Companies like Patagonia, like Unilever, who are very clear about their purpose beyond just making a profit, which is essential and yet not the main thing they're about. There was growing, there's a growing back to what's the evidence? um, um, Yeah, a growing business case that was showing these purpose driven companies were getting strong financial results as well as high degrees of employee engagement. And so that's where my interest in the purpose-led approach came from.
0: And you mentioned it. It took quite a while to write it. Why did it take
1: so long? Well, it's a leadership book powered by purpose and leadership is a complex subject And so I think it took me quite a while to just, and this is where writing is an amazing process. It can be hard work sometimes, but very, very good for crystallising your own thinking. Uh, So there was, that just took a while because whilst there are many books out there on purpose in terms of following your own North Star, for example or about organisations. I wanted to write about purpose um, at scale, so including at the individual team and organisational level, from a leadership angle. What's the leadership required? What are the conversations we need to be having around purpose that will light up individuals, teams and organisations. And there were fragments written in different places, but there was nowhere that really brought that together. So that thinking took a while, as did the collecting of stories. Uh, So there's lots of stories in the book, um, many of them not about me, about teams that I've worked with. And then I had to get permission, of course, if I included actual organizations or leaders names. some of them are anonymized so all of that takes quite a chunk of time it looks like it's going to be a great
0: book and I don't know in terms of purpose as well and I don't know if you cover this in the book or or if you've got any view on this I people can agonize and put so much pressure more from a personal get I guess uh point of view on finding this purpose and I don't know in your experience but certainly in my own life I found my purpose changes and that's fine but I don't know if you've got a view on that from from the work that you've done.
1: I think purpose does evolve over time I think I mean there's a as you know there's a lot of attention on purpose at the moment and I think a potential downside of that is that yes people can agonize or feel under pressure and I think sometimes purpose is right underneath our noses and perhaps we're already to some degree living our purpose. We just haven't quite seen it fully. Or it might be that the environment isn't fully conducive to us expressing our purpose. And I've certainly seen that with some coaches. So actually, if they made a change in their environment, they would flourish And I also think there's a clue in the title, in the subtitle of Powered by Purpose, the subtitle is energise your people to do great work. And so there'll be a clue for you about your purpose, just what energises you, you know, what lifts you up. And that could be to do with activities you do. It could be the kind of people that you like hanging around with, that you like serving. But like, notice what brings you alive. That is a great starting point for getting powered by purpose.
0: And if you had to describe in a sentence or a couple of sentences what your purpose was, how would you describe that?
1: I would say I'm going to borrow the subtitle of the book again. My work is all about energising people to do great work so that they are experiencing that flow of positive energy inside themselves, between themselves in a team. And the great work part is about doing work that makes a difference, because I think money is a hygiene factor. It's not a true motivator. Of course, we all need money uh, in order to live in this world. And yet, if all we're doing is chasing the dollar, that's not going to sustain us in terms of us flourishing as human beings. When work feels meaningful and we feel we're making a difference in whatever way that is, back to our individuality and our uniqueness, that is when we will go the extra mile, bring the discretionary effort. Our work is beneficial, whether that's to other people or to the planet. So that's the great work part. Beautifully said. Love
0: that. Cool. OK, now we are living and I think you might have made a mention to this. We are living in unprecedented. Maybe? I think it's probably true, um, uncertain uh, times and I wonder from your perspective and your experience with organisations and leadership teams what are the core skills that you believe leaders need to develop to navigate their way through the times that we're living in currently?
1: Oh and I'm so pleased you have said core skills for these times of great uncertainty because sometimes I'm sure you know this that the territory that I work in some leaders will call it it's the soft stuff or the soft skills and I really don't think that serves anybody because this is the core stuff, and it's the really critical stuff. Back to you know that ability to have a conversation either opens a door or shuts a door, and so core skills for me would include, uh, alongside making dialogue authentic, which we've covered already, um, cultivating your presence. In uh, it, you could say your leadership presence. So, how do you stay grounded? How do you stay with your energy in good flow when you are spinning multiple plates, when you've got all these different stakeholders, when you might have the competing agendas and so on? And so, I actually think that's where the leadership journey really begins is by you managing your own state and your own energy, including in high stakes situations. And I think the whole mindfulness movement uh, and the way that that's gathering momentum really reflects that recognition that cultivating our presence um, is absolutely core to being a leader and core to effective team working.
0: And so with those core skills in mind, then, are there perhaps three top practical tips that you would give to those leaders and generally people that want to have more meaningful, meaningful conversations? I mean, you've when we might cover the mindfulness, I know we gave some ideas about big conversations, but but maybe broaden it a little bit.
1: So one practical tip in terms of your own presence would be to just reflect on what resources you. So for example, one coachee I'm working with finds it really resourcing to go for a walk in the morning. And that might just be 10 minutes outside, fresh air, oxygen in the lungs. And she would say, that sets me up for the whole day. And You know, I just think, again, taking care of our own energy levels and well-being. And again, that's going to look different to different people. So that would be one tip. A second tip that I think would relate to making dialogue authentic and also presence as well would be if you're in a meeting and you notice the temperature is going up or it's suddenly starting to feel really uncomfortable, then use your physicality and use your posture, uncross your legs, put your feet flat on the floor, sit up a little straighter in your chair, breathe into your belly, you know, and just get centered, um, because that will really increase your ability to listen to other people, listen to the room, not be reactive, um, but to be more responsive to the moment. Uh, And a third question, I think, would be um, share the airtime equally as best you can in a team meeting. Um, There's lots of research that shows high performing teams um, don't have one or two people dominating there's much so you might start a meeting with a check-in you hear something from each person Um, a recent check-in question I've used is what's something that's made you smile recently you know which just creates a bit of positive energy helps people make a personal connection with one another
0: those are brilliant and it's quite interesting actually because I talk about body language in relation to speaking and connecting with the audience and taking the audience on that journey but I think also potentially that subtle shift that someone makes in that heart where things are getting tense, that might actually influence other people around them because we are conscious of body language and and mirroring. So, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I, I could imagine that that would be the case that you make that change and it would influence the people around you and may bring the temperature of the room down.
1: Definitely. And it's a moment to moment navigation sometimes, isn't it, when things go tense. And I think to the extent that you're able to stay relaxed to some degree and not get really contracted yourself, it really does, in a subtle way, as you say, alter the atmosphere in the room. Cool.
0: And now clearly you use stories in your books, Um, And you've told some stories today. Do you use stories and speaking to both grow your business and get your message across to an audience?
1: Absolutely. I use stories both in when I'm writing uh, and sometimes they're my own stories. Sometimes they're stories from working with clients or teams. Um, I'd always ask permission to use those, of course. And sometimes they're stories that are out there in the collective consciousness. So, you know, there's a classic one, J.F. Kennedy, early 1960s, going to the NASA space station, met a janitor who was kind of sweeping the corridor, went up to him and said, hi, you know, I'm Jack Kennedy. Who are you? Um, And he turned around and said, "Um, yeah, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. You know, And it's a story that's often told in relation to purpose with the message of look up, see the bigger picture. You know, it doesn't have to be the case that you're just sweeping the floor. You can be contributing to the larger story. So I sometimes use stories like that.
0: And that is a brilliant story. And I have to say, in my experience, in, in my corporate career, so many companies, and I think this is where your book uh, will help a lot. So many companies miss making that link between what someone does on the shop floor, and um, you know, and then the bigger picture. So I used to work for a manufacturing firm, and they were making cable, and these cables were keeping people alive in space. And I think that's a, a big mistake that people make because it does energize you. I love that story. That's really cool, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing all of those great stories great tips and I think it will create some aha moments for people in a number of ways potentially but before I point people to where they can find more about you and working with you potentially I have some standard questions that I want to ask if that's okay sure okay Uh, the first question this is the speaking club is uh what what's the best thing that speaking has done for you
1: Grow new connections with people that I might never have met. Um, So I did a speaking engagement for Psychologies magazine some years ago. I'm still in touch uh, with a couple of people who came to that event. So new, new connections would be the top benefit.
0: Okay, cool. And have you had a bad speaking gig? One where you're like, oh no, I just want to forget all about that. Has that happened to you?
1: Oh, yes, yes. I went to speak um, with a group of sixth formers uh, in a city. I decided to drive there and my sat nav. I don't know what happened that morning, but I had to walk into the room about 25 minutes late with lots of um, teenagers who didn't want to be there were bored and frustrated that's the hardest room I've ever had to walk into
0: oh that those are those are tough gigs
1: yeah. <laughs> tough <audience. laughs> yes yeah it was fine by the end of it uh but that it has I've had some tricky moments yeah they can
0: be sure. quite intimidating too can't they <laughs> yes
1: yeah absolutely but you know it clarified for me That actually, I wanted to spend the majority of my work with business leaders. So it played its part in its own way. And and also what hard job teachers have got potentially. (laughs) Absolutely. I take my hat off to our teachers. Absolutely.
0: Okay, next question. Uh, What's the book that's had most impact on your life and why?
1: Oh, gosh, if I was going to be really honest... I would say it's not a business book. It's not a novel, it's not a memoir. It's a book that I read many years ago, over 20 years ago, called "Conversations With God" by Neil Donald Walsh, the American best-selling author, whose purpose um, and he put it in seven words, I think, is to change the world's mind about God. Uh, and it's radical. And it's heartwarming. And I I went on to train with Neil a number of years ago and I weave into my work to this day some of his insights and his message about us being who we really are, being authentic, feeling free to be ourselves. So that is my honest answer. It's Neil Donald Walsh's work.
0: Brilliant. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And I wouldn't expect anything less coming from you in terms of being honest. Good. Okay. Um, Next question. What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why?
1: I'm not sure it was quite put in these terms, but this is the essence of it, which is go where there's resonance. So work with people that you feel a connection with work on projects that are interesting and energizing and engaging and where you feel that sense of resonance follow up without needing anything to happen immediately. Because I've sometimes had like a 12 year gap um, between conversations with people, but Different people have given me advice over the years, but I would crystallise it into follow the resonance.
0: Cool. Thank you. And that makes absolute sense. And I I love the way when you were saying about the 12 years, is it like when you say that you mean people that you don't speak to, but then it feels like you're almost there's no gap in between. Is that what you were meaning?
1: Yes. And there's been a gap. So no conversation. And also, I've not known. So this particular person came on a dialogue programme I ran 12 years earlier. I had no idea it had such an impact on her that she'd gone away and used the tools and the techniques and the frameworks. And when we spoke again, um, and she's a current client in a different organisation, it was just a wonderful – I had such an aha moment myself because um, I didn't realise that it had, had that impact on her and her work.
0: Brilliant. Okay, last question then. Um, if you could choose one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional who would you choose and why?
1: I mean, the person that comes to mind just because and she she is no longer alive. I never met her in person is a, a wonderful woman called Brenda Euland, who worked as a writing coach uh, and wrote books about writing. And it really goes back to some of what we've spoken about, about being yourself, feeling free you know, just writing from your guts, from your heart, not letting your inner critic, your super ego, get the upper hand. And her way of writing is fantastic. And I often wish I had met Brenda Euland in person because what she encourages is not just about writing and the written word I think it is about self-expression so she's the person that flashed into my mind.
0: Thank you so much for sharing and if people want to find out more about you working with you having you speak potentially or whatever where's the best place for them to go?
1: Oh thank you so much for this question too Uh, So probably the best place to go is my own personal website, so SaraRosentula.com. I also have a more corporate website, which is bridgeworkconsulting.com. You'll find everything, uh, though, on sarahrosentula.com as well. So either place.
0: Brilliant. And I'll put the links uh, on the show notes. And presumably you're on LinkedIn, social media as well?
1: Yes, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. And people are very welcome to connect uh, through either of those channels as well.
0: And your books are presumably available on Amazon as well. People want to go and check those
1: out. They are Amazon Book Depository, W.H. Smith, uh, Powered by Purpose is in W.H. Smith stores, on um, paper copy as well. So yeah, in all, let's say all, all the usual bookstores. Well, listen, Sarah, thank you so
0: much again for, for some great uh, conversation and tips. And I think, as I said, I think it will help a lot of people have some aha moments, which is brilliant. So thank you very much for your time and everything that you've given today.
1: Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you and all the very best to you and your listeners too. Thank you.
0: Did you have any light bulb moments there? It was good, wasn't it? I've struggled in the past with some of those big conversations and it's great to have some tools and tips to put into practice so that they become easier to manage. What was your big takeaway? Do go and check out Sarah's stuff, especially if you're a leader in an organization and you want your teams to communicate more powerfully. Also, go find her on LinkedIn and say hi if you got some inspiration from this show. Thanks so much again for joining me. And I'll be back next week with episode 200. Unbelievable got to 200 shows. And I'm actually going to be announcing something special next week to celebrate. So don't miss it. In the meantime, don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humour and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of The Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.